Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on calling someone back after a dropped call thanking parents for end-of-year teacher gifts, giving people enough time to grieve, and the need for both red and white wine glasses. For Awesome Etiquette Sustaining members, our question of the week is about how to handle polite requests to turn your volume down. Plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript on winter feasts from Margaret Visser's The Rituals of Dinner. All that's coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in a very snowy Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. And this week, Dan, I really feel like the holidays are kicking into full swing. We've got Hanukkah starting on the day this show airs, Monday, and then Christmas will be the following Sunday, and Kwanzaa the day after that, so next week's Monday. I just feel like we got to start this show by saying happy holidays, awesome etiquette listeners. We're here. They're happening. Tis the season. I hope everybody (laughs) is having a good one, and... It is just awesome. It's also a solstice week. Hooray, hooray. The days will be getting longer from here on out also. (laughs) I know, Dan, that that we've been doing quite a lot of holiday work over the past few weeks, but what are you really looking forward to when it comes to – we we both celebrate Christmas. What are you you looking forward to celebrating this Christmas? Well, even recording this feels a little bit like an exhale to me, and Mm -hmm. I'm imagining Monday morning with a – a holiday week, but looking forward to a week off, a week off with all the kids, with family, with friends. And <laughs> it's been a busy year at Emily Post. It's been a really good year, and it feels like a good opportunity to take a pause, sit back, celebrate, have some eggnog, maybe open a present or two. I'm really excited, Lizzie Post. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> I am too. I've got to say having a niece and nephew in my life has really brought a lot of the magic of Christmas back. Not that my mom isn't amazing at making Christmas very magical for people of all ages, but, um, and she is, this is like her holiday. She really shines at this one. Um, but it's, it's really exciting. It brings a lot of joy to the day. I think I'm going to take my nephew this week to try and learn about gift giving. He's very excited about the gift receiving 
And uh, mm-hmm. it was cute when my sister kind of tried to talk to him about it. He ran around the house and grabbed things he was willing to give to his sister. And, and we were like, well, that's sort of it. And homemade things are always going to be good and from the heart. You know, it's like you don't want to tamp that down. But it's like we're going to go on a special errand to buy something for your sister that's going to be a surprise, something new for her. And I think just the joy of kind of starting to work with a little one on on gift giving and the the joy of it is an exciting thing in my week coming up. (laughs) What do you think she might like? What does she like to do? What would you (laughs) want to get her? And the whole, the whole, you com- yeah, you know this guy. You've been through this twice already, and a third time coming up in a couple of years. Um, I feel, and we're also going to have the conversation of we're going to go to a store where we see a lot of things, and we might get ideas about things we want. But our goal is to get something for your sister. You know what I mean? It'll be like a mm-hmm. re- redirect the attention, <laughs> validate the desire, <laughs> like you know. <laughs> But I'm really looking forward to it. And I just love the fact that we've we've just gotten our blast of winter storm that crossed the country and down in the valley because it's only about like six inches of snow, if that. Um, but uh, but and I don't even think we've got six inches yet. It's still snowing. But I'm sure <laughs> up in the mountains, you're just you guys are ready for for full on winter festivities. <laughs> It was like someone dialed up Winter Wonderland just in the nick of time. It was like, okay, oh, you got a you got a beautiful holiday season coming. Let's give you eight to twelve inches of just that perfect snow. I'm talking perfect snowman, snowball. It sticks. Not, yeah, not quite perfect for sledding. You got to break a trail and 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 really get it packed down, but. It's there. You got your base layer. You got your, you're ready to go. <laughs> well, you let me know when that trail gets blazed, packed down, because you know that I will be up there with my sleds and friends and nieces and nephews. And <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dan's sledding hill is one of my favorite things in the winter. <laughs> I'm just delighted that you love it as much as I do because I think of it as like one of my best kept secrets. And <laughs> it, you you saw it, you know. Some people, it's I, I feel like I've got to show them. You were like, oh, I get it. No, I get it. <laughs> I love the fact that even on the video we did last year when we had completed a bunch of stuff on the book and we're we're really celebrating with a, a little mini sledding party between the two of us. That we didn't even go up like halfway up the run. I mean, like we we called it quits at like the half mile mark. I love that you can actually do almost like an alpine slide version of sledding here, which is just so much fun. <laughs> Somewhere between a luge and a bobsled. Yes, <laughs> kind of the woods version, the country version. <laughs> It's awesome. It's awesome. Well, I am looking forward to all of that. But you know what? Before we can do that, we've got some questions to get to. Shall we answer some listener questions? Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com, leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND, that's 802-858-5463, or you can find us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst, on Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute, and on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your social media posts so that we know you want your questions.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our first question this week is about a callback conundrum. Dan and Lizzie, good morning. Page 78 of Emily Post's Etiquette, the Centennial Edition, talks about dropped phone calls and mentions a best practice to determine who should try to call the other person back. However, I am virtually positive <laughs> y'all advised that whoever initiated the call originally should be the one to call back. In fact, I use that example in my own classes now. I teach career skills to scientists. Do I need to rethink this? Or is the rule, whoever initiated the call calls back? And the specific situation of a location with poor cell service warrants an exception. Lisa. P.S. Isn't it annoying to have sustaining members who pay such close attention to everything you say? Wink and smile. <laughs> oh, Lisa, thank you so much for the question. And Dan and I are laughing hysterically behind the scenes on this one. Not because of the, the potential contradiction or updated advice issue, but because as we were answering this question the first time, our call got dropped. <laughs> it got so dropped. It got so dropped that, like, we couldn't even do the thing. Like, it wasn't like you could even call the other person. It was, I wasn't even getting voicemail. It was just going straight to call failed, call failed, call failed. It was pretty hysterical, to say the least. Network malfunction. And speaking via Google Doc, typing little messages to each other on a live Google Doc, I don't think like, made the book, did it? I'm pretty sure it didn't. No, did not become one of the one of the extended answers that way. Now that we are back and in, in communication with each other, let's try this again. Lisa, a couple different thoughts here. One, definitely not annoying. In fact, it is, um, I, I want to say endearing, but I don't want that to sound patronizing. It's lovely. It's flattering. That, uh, that people are paying this much attention. And I, I really, I do appreciate it, actually. I also think that when it comes to, to sort of rules at Emily Post, I think of things like table manners as like a hard and fast rule a lot of the time, or like that fork is always on the left with the exception of that oyster fork. Um, the, the knives are always on the right. The spoons are always on the right. You know, those things I think of as rules, whereas something like who's going to call who back or whom back, I think is, is a little bit more flexible. And I think one of the reasons that it's really good to have it be flexible is because not everybody knows the rules. And I think that it's it's worthwhile to also have exceptions for situations. This particular advice, Dan, and you're going to laugh when you, you hear it, it was born out of many a phone call with our dear friend and my co-author on Mistakes Were Made, Kelly Williams-Brown, where we would have very long conversations, both of us often being in the car, and we'd hit dead spots. And we'd kind of have to warn each other. Like if I was coming back from Waterbury, I'd be like, hey, I'm going around the mountain. It'll probably be about like five minutes. If I lose you, I will will call you back once I get bars again. Or she would say to me a very mm. similar thing. Hey, I'm going through this area. It might drop the call, but I'll call you back once again. And I was like, you know, this makes a lot of sense because – 
if I'm the one initiating and she's the one in the dead zone, she's going to be the one who knows when she's reached the end of the dead zone and can actually call back as opposed to me who would just be calling fruitlessly on a regular basis until I caught her again. So I think this rule was born actually out of a lot of practicality, and I hesitate to call it a rule. Dan, do you, in in your seminars and things like that, do you have the whoever initiated the call calls back rule as a guideline, as like a something to aim for? Absolutely. And it's one of those great examples of how the whole idea of an etiquette rule is designed to be helpful. It's designed to assist you. And we oftentimes say that the heart of good etiquette is practicality. And I think that it's really wise to keep in mind that as times and situations evolve, the practicality of certain approaches changes. I like keeping in mind the idea that who initiates a call would do the callback. I think it develops out of a very, very traditional etiquette rule back when phone calls were much more structured events. They were more, they're sort of unique in people's lives. We didn't all carry our phones with us all the time. A call was not quite a letter, but it was an event. It was something that you put some some thought into and some attention into. It was also expensive. And the idea was whoever initiated the call would also be responsible for wrapping up the call or or initiating the goodbyes at the end. And I think being aware of that historical courtesy is helpful. It can give you an idea of a good way to to wrap up a phone call, which is a question we often get. I don't know how to end it. I don't know who should end it. And in the absence of any other information, saying to yourself, well, did I start it? I could take the lead wrapping this up, I think is a a good way to start to give yourself the, the permission to do that and to to feel appropriate in that role. And, and I think it makes sense. It makes sense to me. The situation that you just described is an example where that traditional rule, that traditional courtesy isn't going to translate into a situation where calls are being interrupted for all kinds of reasons. Some that you might understand, I'm driving into a dead spot, I'm going around the mountain, mm-hmm. or situations that you that you don't know what, exactly what's going on. A, a network error, say. In my own mind, when I think about it, I think about there being a slight difference between a call that's been interrupted and who's responsible for the callback and who, in the absence of anything else, would be responsible for wrapping up or ending a call. Mm-hmm. And when I'm thinking about the disruption example, I would think situationally like you. Is this a relationship where I know I like to have long extended calls and we're oftentimes doing that while we're driving? So it, it makes a lot of sense for us to have this kind of a, an arrangement and understanding with each other. Mm-hmm. For me with my family, where we all live right on the edge of cell reception, I know when I'm talking to my brother on his cell phone at his home that it's about a 50-50 chance it's going to work. And mm-hmm. having that information lets us make good decisions about me not needing to repeatedly call him back when the weather shifts and his phone's just not working. He can reach back out when his phone is getting reception again. So I think that situational awareness is key. I think if you're aware that it's your fault, that it's the, the disruptions coming from your end or as a result of something that you're doing or is located on your device... I think it's a good idea to think about being the one who might reach back out. Yeah. I think there's another practicality I think about. Is there something else that you really wanted to say? Sometimes <laughs> calls are wrapping up. They're essentially over. And <laughs> We're done here. <laughs> I like or, or, that, guys. Or, or maybe it's a social call and there really isn't a need to get back on. There's something you'd like to say. Or maybe you called to get a little something done and 
regardless of where the disruption came from, you're going to call them back because you're you're still trying to get a confirmation about X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And then for me, that the other consideration would be that did I initiate this call? Would it be up to me to to conclude it and say goodbye? But for a disruption, that would fall further down my list of things that I'd be thinking about in terms of do I call them right back? And I know that's a lot to think about before you just hit the call back button on your phone or power it off and put it back in your pocket. I'm hearing all of it. And I'm like, I appreciate that this is out there. I don't follow any of this, though, in my own personal life in the in the world of like, how it happens. I feel like uh, thumbs go to texting so quickly when a call gets dropped. Hey, did that get dropped? Are you able to get this? Like, I feel like there's so many different things in my daily life that might contradict this, this rule of whoever initiated the call makes the call back. But I like the idea for when you're uncertain, it's a place to go for a, a, a little bit of guidance to just give you, and I loved how you would put it, the encouragement, the confidence to just place the call and go for it, you know, and just get back in touch to make the connection again. Exactly. Does it work for you? Does thinking about it like that make sense? Does it make sense in the situation? I might be in a situation where I didn't initiate the call, but I just got mm-hmm. interrupted by the disruption. I was in the middle of saying something. I really want to finish it. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't feel bad about picking the phone up and calling you back, Lizzie Post, whether you initiated <laughs> it or whether I did. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, rather than harder, fast rules, I would think of these all as good ideas, good things to think about as we're thinking about our phone manners. And they're helpful things to lean on to to give us the confidence to engage. We really do appreciate your question. We also really appreciate the incredibly ironic moment it provided us with, and we certainly hope our answer helps. Our next question is titled, Thank You Thoughts. Hello, I am a private school teacher of children in a Montessori classroom of 21 children. My school is a very small private school. As such, my salary is also very small, well below average salary for many schools in our area and a third the public school salary in our area. I also do not have benefits through the school. That being said, I am fairly certain that the parents that send their children to our somewhat elite school do not realize the drastic disparity in the teacher income in comparison to what they pay for private school tuition for their young children. Often, I do make purchases for my classroom for materials and do a great deal to plan for my students. I love each child in my classroom and try to adjust our classroom constantly in order to benefit the developmental progress of all children, while also focusing on the needs of each individual. That's just a bit of background info about my particular teaching situation. Before Christmas or winter break, many families gave me gifts. As much as possible, I try to open the gift in front of each child gift giver to let them see how much I appreciate their gifts. We also give each child a small gift each December from the teachers. I always acknowledge these gifts with a handwritten thank you card, sometimes mailed or some years sent home with the children the first day back from winter break, depending on my particular finances at that time of year. This year, for some reason on Valentine's Day, I received many gifts from students and again acknowledged all with a thank you card that I mailed. 
Today, as we had our end-of-year gathering, I received many gifts and cards from children and families. Different from the others this year, all of them had a note or card telling me thank you from the child and the family. All but one of these gifts I was able to open with the child and verbally express thanks and hugs, and my excitement for Starbucks gift card, a plant, or personalized mugs, etc. Last year, I only acknowledged one overly generous end-of-the-year thank-you gift. It was a more generous gift card amount, $50. Although I recognize that many of my students' families are more financially secure than I am, I'm worried that I was wrong last year in not writing thank-you notes for the the end-of-the-year thank-you gifts. Should I write thank-you notes this year? I won't see the children, so I will have to mail these notes now. Also, it's been a rough financial year for me, so can I email notes as to not incur additional expenses of purchasing cards and postage? Thanks for your input. Trying to do the right polite thing, EJ. EJ, thank you so much for the question. And I want to start off by saying you just sound like a wonderful teacher. Yeah. Proceed with so much care and so much thought for your students and the classroom environment that you create and the relationship that you have with each individual student as well as really with their families as well, those people operating just behind the the curtain when you're interacting with one of these young people. I also am really inspired by the way you got inspired when you flexed your thank you note writing muscle on Valentine's <laughs> Day. That, you know, here you, you got all of these little notes and it looked a little different and felt a little different than previously it had. And you were inspired to write handwritten notes to everybody. And Writing thank you notes is like that. Once you get into practice with it, once you start feeling how good it feels, once you start seeing the impact, it can be catching. So (laughs) I also want to encourage you to try to carry that feeling forward into the way you're approaching the end of year um, gifts this year. It's also very important that whenever you do anything, you pay attention to your own budget and you operate within the financial parameters that, that are reasonable for you to operate within. And I wouldn't ever want you to feel like an expectation to write thank you notes and purchase cards and, and mail them is asking more of you than you can afford. So I would focus on the relationship. I would focus on that feeling of gratitude that you want to honor and making the connection and then I would look for creative ways to do that. And I think there are, there are a bunch of good options out there for you. Oh, there most definitely are. Dan, I'm already thinking about the amazing thank you note. We didn't talk about it in our intro, y'all. But Dan and I received a very special thank you note yesterday all the way from France. You've heard us read on this podcast a million and one times out of Margaret Visser's The Rituals of Dinner. Well, we thanked Margaret in the book, and we sent her a copy of the book all the way to France as a thank you for all of the amazing work that she has put out into the world. And she wrote us back. And it was very cute because at the very end of the letter, she talked about how she knows a lot of times things are supposed to be on nice stationery and with a fountain pen. And she tends to prefer or easily grab computer paper and a ballpoint pen. And she hoped that wasn't offensive to us. Of course it wasn't. We were like gaga over this this thank you note she wrote us. Absolutely I, gaga. I, I think really, I squealed with delight we did. when you told me about we it. We did. <laughs> and, and in that... 
the example here is that even on, you know, computer paper, not even decorated, a thank you note can convey all the things that you want it to. And so I would encourage you to find some scrap paper. You might take some time if, if you can afford it with the materials to or the materials that you have in your own home to do a, a little decoration. And even if that's just like little flourishes in the corners or something like that, it doesn't have to be hugely artistic, but a little something to, to spruce it up if you'd like. Write those thank you notes. And then I say send them home with the kids when you all come back from holiday break. Bing, and bing, I think bing. that that would be perfectly appropriate. Most of these gifts came to you, I bet, from the children, their parents giving them the gift to take to school to give to their teacher. And I think that sending it right home through the same child messaging system would work, (laughs) Um, your CMS. And so I think that it would absolutely still land the right note. It's going to save you on the postage and the materials. And my guess is that you could come up with a very, very darling, very sweet card that would really convey the sentiment that you want to convey and the gratitude that you want to convey. So I hope that that helps to to make your holiday season a little bright and allow you, as Dan says, to participate with enthusiasm and with the genuine spirit of generosity that you feel and the gratitude that you feel in the holiday thank you note writing tradition. Lizzie Bose, there's one other thing that I wanted to mention before we exit this answer. And that's the the feeling of guilt or maybe feeling a little bad about not having written notes to everyone last year, despite having written a note to one person who gave a particular gift. Mm-hmm. And it's a theme that we have talked about on this show before, that looking back and assessing our own behavior and particularly the the places where maybe we – even if we didn't make mistakes, maybe we came up a little bit short from where we would want to in a an ideal world or with an idealized version of ourselves – and that can be really useful to the extent that it inspires future action. In this particular case, you're already taking the action. You're already thinking about how you're going to do it this year. So I want to give you just as much awesome etiquette permission as I can to not feel bad or yeah. not feel guilty about last year not having been able to get a note to everybody in the class and to have found that inspiration on Valentine's Day just a couple months later. EJ, we really hope that our answer helps and that you and your students have a great end of the year and a great start to the next one. Yes, everywhere you go, people talk about thoughtfulness. Well, just what does thoughtfulness mean? How does it fit into your everyday life? Our next question is about a grace period for grieving. Hello, awesome etiquette team. I was just listening to episode 165, in particular the section about the woman who just lost her husband. I'm seeking advice for a similar situation. This past April, a very dear friend of my husband and mine passed away from cancer at the age of 29. She was survived by her fiancé, let us call him R, who is also a dear friend of ours. R has handled the passing of his fiancé well on the outside, but has admitted to me that he has not addressed the emotional side of her passing. Lately, I have had a few close friends tell me how concerned they are about R. He has not gotten rid of any of his fiancée's personal items, has not been responding to her family's phone calls, and has been traveling a lot. To me, I understand his behavior, and I do not think that it is anything to be concerned with. But my friends are insisting that his behavior is not right and that someone needs to talk to him. My question is, is there a proper amount of time for someone to grieve? Should I be concerned about R? 
Thank you for taking the time to read this. I look forward to a response. Amanda. Amanda, thank you so much for reaching out to us. And we are so sorry for your loss and that your friend R is is still grieving strongly for that loss. A quick answer to the question would be no, there's there's no proper amount of time for someone to grieve. I think grief is something that with each loss that we experience, it becomes a part of our lives. And we certainly find ways to move on from, I think, some of the the emotional parts of grief that we get through, whether that's a depression or a denial or, a, you know, anger, relief. I mean, all kinds of different emotions come up as as we grieve. But the idea that someone we loved is is no longer someone that we can communicate in the physical world with, um, I think, stays with us for a long time. You know, uh, our our grandparents passed away years ago. And I can still tap into that grief emotion when I think of them. But as time goes on, there also tends to be a lot of living of life that helps us to move on from that being our everyday moment. But there's no time, there's no kind of like set appropriate time. Um, you know, back in Emily's day, Dan, I'm thinking of, of when, you know, you had to wear black for a certain number of months, or you weren't expected to attend certain types of events, or if you did, people weren't going to talk to you. Primarily to respect the fact that you needed space, you know, even though you were trying to operate socially, there there was so much to it. But for now, I think questions of concern, questions of is it right or wrong? I think we got to listen to our own own radars. And the best thing we can do is to check in with people. Don't you think, Dan, like that just checking in as, as best you can reaching out and saying, hi, how are you? Absolutely. That was one of the thoughts that just rang out to me crystal clear as I was reading this question was, I, I really hope that Amanda feels confident talking to R or sending R a note or just giving a call or however it is that you communicate and communicated in times gone by, I think would be something to lean into at this point, just so that that R does feel that connection with you and with a larger community that also knew his fiance. I would also think about talking to the friends and family who have expressed concern to you and talking to them about how grief affects people and affects people differently and what a serious thing it is. I think that there's room for you to support your friend just by normalizing the mm -hmm. range of reactions that people might have to an unexpected passing or the passing of someone who they're very close with and who they maybe didn't expect to lose at that particular mm -hmm. time. And mm -hmm. that can be really shocking. That can be surprising as well as saddening and frustrating and anger inducing. So I think really sharing that and letting the, the whole community process and process openly process with you. And I'm not talking about gossiping, talking about someone and how they're responding, but, mm -hmm. but talking in a way that you would feel comfortable talking to R about it. If that ever came up is entirely reasonable. And as part of the way families, communities, friend groups start to understand and, and deal with that grief and process it. The thing that occurred to me that was kind of interesting as you were talking, Lizzie, about traditional mourning periods, and I don't know why I had in my head that, that there was a, about a year that was an expected mourning period in Emily's day. And Oh, it might have been. I don't know exactly. I was just tossing six, six I, months I'd to a year I'd have a hard time going to a book and finding a <laughs> reference for that, but I'm, yeah. I'm, it's something that's that's in the brain somewhere. There's a few cobwebs on it. 
but it really it, it functioned i think both to to protect that person from other people expecting too much of them as well as serving to be a guide for that person about what to expect from themselves as far as dealing with other people yeah. it it really functions in two different ways and the first thing that i said might be the way that courtesy, that very traditional courtesy translates into a modern framework that I really hear you, Amanda, thinking about it not being reasonable for the friend group to have a lot of these expectations about normalizing behavior or responding in a certain way at this particular time, that that doesn't seem to make sense to you as far as how the individual are is responding to this situation. And mm -hmm. I think you're very much in line with some very traditional courtesies and very traditional approaches to a mourning period. If, if that's an analogy or, or a frame of reference that you're drawing on, I, I think you've, you've got a pretty solid perspective on that. Amanda, again, we are so sorry for, for your loss and for ours loss, but we really appreciate you asking the question. These types of situations are, are so hard. They're hard for the people who are impacted the most and they're hard for people watching and, and supporting that person who's been impacted the most. And we really appreciate the chance to explore the question, explore the answer. And we really hope that R is able to get to a place where he feels at peace with, with what has happened and is able to, to move forward in a way that feels really good to him. Thank you so much for the question. Our next question is titled, Wine Glass Worries. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I love your podcast and have started listening to and from work. I'm only on episode 20, but enjoying the freedom to binge listen your show. With that said, if this question has been asked, please refer me to the appropriate episode for an answer. I am currently engaged and the wedding is fast approaching. Congratulations! <laughs> when my fiancé and I registered for gifts, we registered for crystal wine glasses, red and white, and matching water goblets. These are items that my close aunt encouraged me to register for. She adores hers, and I'm looking forward to using them in my home. People have begun to purchase wine glasses for us. However, I'm starting to rethink the number that we registered for. The space they will require and the cost if all of the sets are not purchased. So, tabletop questions. What is the etiquette on wine glasses? Can you use red or white glasses universally, or must you have both red and white for their appropriate occasions? I do know that the shape of the red glass is intentional, but what about the white? I am also considering putting stock into one wine glass, red over the other. Is this incorrect? Please explain the ways of wine. And if you already have, I apologize. No, we have not, just so you know. Thank you, and have a wonderful day, Laura. Dan, you drink so much wine. Don't you want to answer this question? <laughs> Laura, congratulations. Ed Lizzie Post, you are so rude. <laughs> you know the last glass of wine I drank was probably... Five, six, seven years ago, something like with my dad in Seoul, South Korea, or something like that. <laughs> I think it was with the client in Las Vegas. Okay, the, gotcha. With, anyway, but yes, um, <laughs> it was client related, and there was a sommelier involved, and I could not say no. It was awesome. So I, I love totally. a good glass of wine in the right occasion, the right situation. But I very rarely find myself in that particular situation for me. 
um, mm-hmm. which is why Lizzie is laughing about this. Teasing, if, teasing, teasing. If <laughs> I were to pick one wine glass to have in my house, it would be a red wine glass. That's the wine I would be most likely to be drinking and serving. Mm-hmm. If you were to ask this question of Cindy post-sending, my mother, she would probably tell you it would be a good idea to have white wine glasses in the house because that's mm-hmm. what she prefers to drink and to serve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When it comes to the wine aspect of it, I am woefully uninformed when it comes to the details. But when it comes to the wedding gift component of it, I feel like there is a bunch of good etiquette here and some advice that I would like to pass along. That's advice that I received from a similar aunt-like figure in my life when I was setting up a wedding registry. And that was, don't be shy to get something started also. You can always complete a set later in life. You can always fill it out later. If your current table seats six or eight, and someday you hope to have a table that seats 12 or 16, you can always add on later and maybe make some choices that are from uh, some production lines or from a provider where you can be pretty certain that you'll be able to continue to fill out a set, to continue to add pieces or even add um, whole place settings as your your needs change and, and maybe your financial situation changes as well. But I was hoping that you to give you some options and some ways of thinking about it that would allow you both to approach it in a way that's reasonable for you right now, but also honors that inspiration that your aunt passed on to you so well. Lizzie, what do you think about setting a table with one wine glass or the other wine glass or both, or are they interchangeable? Oh, I'm going to just skip right over your setting the table question part of it and jump straight to this registry issue that Laura is having. Laura, register for the wine glasses you are most likely to use right off the get-go in your own home. Go for the ones that you like, that make you enjoy pouring a glass of wine for someone. I don't know about you all, but I have been to plenty of restaurants where my red wine comes in a glass that looks very much so like a white wine glass, and it has to my inexperienced palate, tasted just as delicious. I enjoyed it just as much. Often that's at sort of a less fancy restaurant. You kind of get those more generic shaped wine glasses and they're pouring both red and white into each. So if the wine glasses in this particular collection are super bulbous, I mean, just really, 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 really round and big and gigantic, I actually might consider getting the white wine glass that might look a little more versatile. What I don't want to do is order something that looks like a champagne flute that's going to be really too thin and not allow a lot of breathing for either a red or a white wine. So that's that's my thought on, on the registry. Dan, going to your question about a table – just just like you, I think that we want to think about what Laura's most likely to serve her guests, how she'd like her table to look, the way she would like to build her own entertaining style and those types of things to to make a decision. And that, that might lean Laura more closely to that red wine glass, this, you know, under that type of a, a, a thought process. But no matter what, this is about your personal choice. And as Dan said, this doesn't have to be something that you get all of it at once or that you buy out the rest of that registry. It can be something that builds over time. And so I say start with what's going to be the most useful and versatile for you and then add the other elements. 
For me, that that would probably be going with the white wine glass if it was fairly generically wine glass shaped. You know what I mean, Dan? <laughs> and then like going for the the big beautiful red glasses. Maybe maybe that becomes an anniversary gift that that you know you put on the list for for sweetie to to do next year, or maybe it becomes a Christmas gift that you ask for in a in a year following or something like that. But um, or it's just something you you buy on your own as you build up your own collections. But I like the idea of starting with with what would be versatile or what would really suit your own personal style and taste and what you end up serving your guests regularly. Laura, what a fun thing to be thinking about. What a fun time in life. We wish you the best as you continue your wedding planning and hope that the getting hitched goes off without a hitch. And whatever choices you make about your registry, we hope that you enjoy entertaining as a couple. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or send a text to 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your post so that we know you want your question on the show. If you're enjoying Awesome Etiquette, and we certainly hope you are, please consider becoming a paid subscriber to our Substack by going to emilypost.substack.com. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content, including our discussion threads and community. Plus, you're going to feel great knowing that you help to keep Awesome Etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already paid subscribers to our Substack, thank you so much for your support. We are so excited to have it and so incredibly grateful. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today we have feedback from Jeremy via Patreon about tipping hotel staff. To echo a point Lizzie and Dan make so well, I find that at the more mainstream hotels or budget chains, you have to be super obvious that the gratuity is indeed for them and not just money left on the furniture. I find a small envelope is the best for this, as it is clear to them, since most rooms do not come with full stationery anymore. Yes, I will travel with a few small envelopes just for this purpose. I have had to ask a manager or cleaning supervisor if gratuities are accepted when they're left after a day or two. I found out some chains and budget properties don't allow staff to accept gratuities. I always make sure to call out good service in a review or a follow-up to the property so management knows they've got a good team. I personally find for staff at properties where a gratuity isn't the usual is overt thanks coming back immediately with the room refresh, an extra towel set, extra toiletries, etc., or a lovely note back. While I'd never leave a gratuity for a thank you kickback, it lets me know that staff members felt special, seen, and appreciated, which always leaves me with a super happy heart. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for that feedback. I I not only learned something that will definitely influence our advice in the future, but I giggled a little. I loved I loved the idea that, you know, hey, I don't I don't leave a gratuity for a thank you kickback. But I also I love the idea of going to put a review up if if the staff Absolutely. isn't allowed to accept gratuities. That was awesome. And I honestly was not aware that cleaning staff might not be allowed to accept gratuities. So I love knowing that I should now ask 
ask about that depending on what type of hotel I'm staying at. I really, really appreciate this advice. Jeremy, this isn't a thank you kickback, but thank you so much for the feedback. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your feedback or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today, it's appropriately about Christmas feasting from one of our all-time favorites, Margaret Visser, and her incredible book, The Rituals of Dinner. Our reading begins on page 28. This book also makes an amazing gift, just saying. All right, it begins. Extravagance can be the essence of a feast, quantity and richness of food, and enough alcohol to break down inhibitions. Rabelaisian dinners are expressions of human triumph over the riches of the earth. In A Christmas Carol, Dickens piles up a gargantuan feast for his ghost of Christmas present to sit upon. It is the expression of generous plenty, hot, fruity, meaty, and bright, and specific to this particular season. Quote, Heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, suckling pigs, long wreaths of sausage, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. A 17th century plea for enjoying seasonal cheer had shown fat, florid Christmas being arraigned by his Scrooge-like opposition, 12 dreary jurymen most significantly named Starve Mouse, All Pride, Keep All, Love None, Eat None, Give Little, Hoard Corn, Grudge Meat, Knit Gut, Serve Time, Hate Good, and Cold Kitchen. <laughs> Festal lavishness is often used to redistribute wealth, where beer plays a great part in social intercourse, being what the anthropologist R. Netting calls both the symbol and the essence of a good life, among the Kafir of Nigeria, for example, or the Hivaro Indians of the Amazon, or the Bemba of Zambia, having a large stock of nourishing and convivial drink on hand constitutes riches." But beer parties have to be given regularly, or the standing and reputation, and with them a good deal of the power, of the rich man is lost. The enormous prestige that accrues to being able to invite many guests is quote-unquote bought with and depends upon the pleasure of other people. Food and drink cannot be hoarded like money. They must be consumed and the surplus shared so that where they constitute wealth, they act partly as society levelers, even though party-giving is productive of power and influence. Food is tradition, largely because a taste acquired is rarely lost, and tastes and smells which we have known in the past recall for us, as nothing else can, the memories associated with them. Marcel Proust made Remembrance of Things Past, one of the longest novels ever written, arise out of a bit of cake which one day he soaked in tea, just as had been the custom in his childhood. 
A shudder ran through him, and an exquisite pleasure he could not at first fathom, and then he understood. Taste and smell alone, more fragile but more enduring, more substantial, more persistent, more faithful, remain poised a long time, like souls, remembering, waiting, hoping amid the ruins of all the rest. So in that moment, all the flowers in our garden and in M. Swan's park and the water lilies on the vivant and the good folk of the village and their little dwellings and the parish church and the whole of Cambrai and its surroundings taking shape and solidity sprang into being, town and gardens alike, from my cup of tea. Feasts by means of structure and ritual deliberately use the powerful connotations of food to recall origins and earlier times. They also attempt to be events in themselves unforgettable in order to furnish recollections for the future. The food served at festivals is therefore not only richer and more splendid than what we usually eat, but also traditional inherited from the past and intended to be experienced as ancient custom. The recipes and the lore associated with it are to be handed on by us for use again in ritual celebrations. Festive food is both out of the ordinary and, if the festival is a recurring one, always the same. English Christmas pudding and brandy-soaked Christmas cake is heavy, sweet, and rich. It is eaten in the depth of winter when we can permit ourselves dense food that sticks to our ribs. Even then, in the context of the season's feasting, a tiny bit suffices. Once we have recovered from Christmas, we are quite happy to wait a year before trying the cake and pudding again. Dried fruit mixes require long, hard work in the making and maturing of them. Time taken in the preparation of festival foods is part of the value attributed to them and focuses attention upon that value. There is a tendency also to associate very dark foods such as coffee, chocolate, truffles, caviar, and capes, as well as plum cake with excitement and luxury. We feel obscurely that such strange dark stuff must be meaningful and ancient. Fruit puddings and cakes do have very old roots, but the modern forms of them are quite recent ritual adaptations. We are eating cultural history and value, as well as family memories. I just love that <laughs> so much. Zipos, when you said to me, I've got a Christmas reading from Margaret Visser, I just said, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> So good. And I will say the section on Proust did sound very familiar to me, but I have to say, I just find it so incredibly apropos. I know we've talked about how th this year my family has been kind of changing traditions and how difficult that's been for me. We almost lost our Christmas feast this year, and I championed for it by, by talking about how the traditions we hold together are so dear, and they've, they've been created, and they hold so much meaning. And I will happily prep as much as I need to to help with the heavy lifting of such a meal, but please just let me have the meal with my family. <laughs> okay, that is so awesome <laughs> that you actually like 
awesome etiquette in the family tradition. (laughs) Oh, I did. Across all boards, right? My mom was feeling overwhelmed this year. She just didn't know how to handle anything. The grandkids are too young right now to stay at the table, like, through a whole meal. And that often means a parent is up and at. So it doesn't create the feeling she wants for having prepped all that food. So I did the thing we talked about and I I validated the fact that she was stressed and I tried to identify places where I could relieve the stress and help her organize it. And then I gave her the good thing I just said, which is like, you guys have spent 40 years creating beautiful traditions and our Christmas dinner is one of those traditions. And because we don't do it with the big post family anymore – it's really meaningful to still do it with our little post family. And, and it worked, man. I got Christmas dinner back, y'all. Like I did. For the children. Yeah. We do it for the children. The 40-year-old being the child. And, and, and for ourselves, just a little bit. But I did promise to make all the sides and we came up with a dish my mom could cook two days beforehand that would still taste amazing, you know, by Christmas afternoon. So it's just strategic planning. That's all. (laughs) Well, way to to channel your inner viscer and make it happen. Thank you both for finding that reading and both for saving the mini post family Christmas. Well, my pleasure. And Dan, as you know, on the 26th, I will be calling you to find out how your Christmas and its feast went this particular year. <laughs> we will dish about the dish. <laughs> we like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world. And that can come in so many forms. And today, we have a great salute from Will. Will begins, this salute is for my former boss, Jim. If he is listening, he will know. (laughs) When I first started my current job over 10 years ago, it represented a big professional change for me. Jim was instrumental in getting me going and headed in the right direction. In the years since, we've been through a great deal together. And while no one is ever perfect, when it came to big things, or even little things that matter for the right reasons, he was always a leader you could trust to work from a place of consideration, respect, and honesty. He might not think of it as etiquette, but he has it in spades. As he now enters retirement, and I find myself an old hand at the desk where I sit, I want to offer him this salute for the many good years I got to work with him. Thanks, Jim. Oh, Will, that's a fabulous salute. Thank you so much for sharing such a great long-term working relationship with your boss. And we'd like to join you in wishing Jim a very happy retirement. Uh, Indeed. I'll add my thanks. Thanks, Jim. And thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who sent us something and for everyone who has joined us over on Substack to support us with a paid membership there. We are so grateful for your support. Please connect with us. Share the show with friends, family, coworkers, however you like to share podcasts. You can send us questions, feedback, and salutes, and we do need them. Chris is gearing up for another trip away. By email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. By phone, you can leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. 
on Twitter, we are at Emily Post Inst. On Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. And on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting emilypost.substack.com. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. It helps our show ranking, which helps more people find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by the wonderful Chris Albertine and assistant produced by the awesome Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. And Bridget. <laughs> <laughs>